Hey, y'all, you're listening to episode 163 of the God Center Mom podcast with me, Heather McFadden. Today, I'm chatting with Barnabas Piper, son of Pastor John Piper. We're going to cover a lot of different topics, so hold on. So I'm a pastor's kid. I'm John Piper's son. And now I'm somebody who, who is a writer and podcasts myself. And so I've kind of put myself in front of people but then how do I maintain privacy? And so like, so honesty and openness and privacy are a difficult thing to balance. Um, because, because privacy and secrecy are really similar too. And one of those is good and one of those is bad. And so when I saw the way that you were able to get up and say, this is where I'm coming from. My heart is in just this very sort of raw, hurt, exhausted place. Inside, I was thinking, me too. And outside, I probably had my arms crossed and a pretty blank look on my face. Barnabas isn't just John Piper's son. He's an author in his own right. He's written The Pastor's Kid, Help My Unbelief, and his newest book, The Curious Christian. And I first interacted with Barnabas when our team, our Israel Collective team, met up at the JFK Sheraton for dinner before heading uh, on an airplane the next day. And ended up sitting right next to Barnabas, and uh, when everyone had to go around and introduce themselves, we were all pretty much strangers to each other. Barnabas got up. He didn't share all of his story. Um, I'll come out with more of that in a second. I got up, and I was a little bit upset that we had to introduce ourselves because I knew I would not be able to hold back the tears. And of course, I stood up and cried before I talked, and then just overshared. So, in this episode, it's a little bit longer than most. Uh, It's because I wanted you to get to know Barnabas. For you moms that perhaps are pastor's wives, you would be interested in hearing his perspective as a pastor's kid. And then uh, I thought it'd be helpful for you to hear from a single parent. I know there's a lot of single parents out there um, and hear his insights and thoughts about that. And then he and I get into the Middle East and the political situation there. And before you say, hey, that's not going to be for me, just know that there were a lot of things I learned from the military strategist and the journalist that I found some great parenting tips too. And it's going to help you when you do catch wind of some news to know what's going on over there. But I wanted to hop in here. Last night I went to a concert. Uh, Another guy on our trip, Fizzle, had a concert here in Dallas, and I really wanted to go. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him and knowing his testimony, and I thought my boys would enjoy hearing from him. But I was absolutely, you know, blown away by the power of preaching that these rappers did. It was it was beyond anything I've heard in a church, a conference. Um, it It was so powerful. And the more I thought about it, one of the reasons I, I think – their gospel message penetrated so deeply was because they felt the weight of what they'd been saved from and saved to. Uh, I thought about my upbringing and how I was born into a home where my parents believed in Jesus and uh, we had means. And even if I'd wandered on my own and chosen my way, there were a lot of safety nets to keep me from really hard places. And a lot of the guys that shared in their testimonies uh, had had really difficult, challenging starts. And when they fell uh, and chose their own way, there wasn't a safety net there. And they um, ended up in prisons or addictions, um, hard, hard places. And so when someone came and told them the gospel, it transformed their life and the passion they had for the gospel and their passion they had to disciple others and for the world to know about Jesus was overwhelming. And I'm so thankful my boys got to hear it. I'm so thankful that I got to hear it. Uh, So many Holy Spirit driven moments from that time together. I wanted to tell you about one of Fizzle's songs. He didn't sing it last night, but y'all can get it. It's a single he did with Ellie Holcomb, who you heard in a couple episodes back. Uh, It's called Tears. You can find it on iTunes. One of the lines of the song is, Times are dark, Lord, send the sun. And I was contemplating on that during one of my quiet times recently. And I thought about some moms I'd interacted with recently at an event and how so many of us, even though our Facebook or Instagram posts may not show it, we're living in some dark places. Um, And maybe we have that safety net and it's keeping us from going to um, 
some really, really difficult things, but I have a feeling we're dealing with more hard things than we give uh, notice to, to the person next door. People are suffering from evil in this dark world. And so I was struck, I was reading Colossians 1.13, and he wrote, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And I love that play from darkness and sun, just like Fizzle wrote in his song. Because we may live in this dark world, but it doesn't hold our spirits. We aren't bound by that darkness once we have confessed a faith in Jesus. In our innermost places, we have been set free. We are able to live in communion with Christ. So no matter how dark it gets, we have the sun shining a light of hope. And the world does not get to be the boss of my soul. I hope that's an encouragement to you, whatever dark place you're finding yourself in, that you can be in communion with Christ and he can shine a light in your soul because he doesn't long for us to live in that place of bondage. He wants deliverance so that we can shine a light to others and point them to Christ Jesus. So all that to say, let's get to my conversation with Barnabas. Here we go. Hey, Barnabas, welcome to the God Center Mom podcast. I am so excited to be on with you. Thanks, Heather. Well, you know, since we met, I've just had a special place in my heart for you, Barnabas. You know, like a mom, kind of, in a weird way, but also just connected with you and couldn't wait to have you on the show because I feel like you have all of this this thinking you do, this like deep <laughs> thinking, and then a clever way to communicate it. So I was I, excited. I hope so. I hope it's clever and not just big <laughs> words. No, 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 no. It's good. It's good stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I have guys on the show, even though it's a God centered mom podcast, I do have a lot of men on the show. And, uh, I don't know, maybe because I had brothers growing up, I, I like it. Uh, and I also like, as part of your story, that you grew up as a pastor's kid, uh, John Piper's son. And I know for a lot of the moms that listen to my show, they are pastor's wives, and they would take particular interest in hearing from you. So uh, you you probably get this often. What was it like growing (laughs) up as a pastor's kid? What what were some uh, highlights, lowlights? Yeah, I, I earned that question because <laughs> uh, partly because of just my last name and partly because when you decide to write a book about it, you forever give people permission to ask questions. So that's true. Um, no, it was uh, it wasn't a terribly notable upbringing while I was young because it was the only thing that I knew. And it didn't sort of dawn on me until probably late high school or early college that this was an unusual thing. Um, I think in retrospect, what stands out to me is that is is two things one is that um i loved being part of the church uh so for me it wasn't a resentful thing in terms of i just loathed every minute of it um the church was my family most of my best friends from childhood were through church people uh, i still i'm still friends with today um but the flip side is that being a pastor's kid uh of any in any size church so not just not just if you're your parents are very prominent. It brings a lot of scrutiny with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and with scrutiny comes expectations because if people are watching, whether they mean to or not, they also sort of have a standard that they, that they hold you to. Yeah. And so that's, that's a spiritual thing. It's a behavior thing. It is a, what are you doing with your life thing? Um, and, and so, and so that can, that can lead to a variety of responses by pastor's kids. Some are very rebellious. Some are pretty amenable to it. Uh, I would fall more in the camp of the, what I would call like a chameleon or <laughs> I was sort of, I could, I could do whatever was needed of me to make those people think well of me. And a lot of pastor's kids have that, that, uh, I don't know if it's called a gift or a curse or ability, <laughs> but it's, it's a thing that it's a thing that we can do. Explain to the mom listening, where are you in the lineup of kids? So how many siblings do you have? Yeah, I'm the fourth of five children. Um, the fourth, the youngest biological child. And then I have a younger sister who our family adopted when I was about 12 years old. So there's about a 23 or 24 year age span amongst the kids. My oldest brother's um, about 11 or 12 years older than I am. And then my younger sister's 12 years younger than I am. So for the first 12 years of my life, I was the fourth boy 
Mm-hmm. So four boys, youngest biological child, and then my sister joined the family and the dynamic changed a little bit, but she also, um, because of that age difference sort of was sort of was an only child in terms yeah. of her upbringing compared to, uh, the rest of us. Now y'all see why I took interest in Barnabas. I was like, you're the youngest of four boys <laughs> and right. your parents yeah. are in ministry. I was like, tell me, tell me all the things you had mentioned when some of the dads were talking on our trip about their family devotional time, some advice you <laughs> might give if, if the dad is a yeah. pastor. What was that? No, um, I, I think, I think pastors' families should think long and hard about whether or not they should even do family devotions. Yeah. I think for a non-pastor's family, having intentional time in the Word, to, especially with kids, to teach kids, to expose them to the Word, is incredibly valuable because there's not this constant and overt exposure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a pastor's family, there's, there's more exposure than might even be healthy to it mm-hmm. because the Bible is just in everything. Mm-hmm. It's... Mm-hmm. And it's perceived in everything. And and so I resented family devotions growing up, and I still struggle with it when I'm home and my parents want to do those things because, because it was just it was just one more thing. One more thing. You, felt, you almost would have rather like let's just all like have a dance party or just like, yeah, like hang just out and have talk. fun together as a family. Yeah. Yeah. Be together. Talk or watch it watch a game or watch a movie or just yeah, something like that. And and I again, I I don't want to be overly prescriptive, but I felt permission to say this more boldly when I found out that uh, one of Tim Keller's sons, who is now going into ministry himself, so mm-hmm. he's on the straight and narrow. Uh, <laughs> he felt the same way. He measured way. up. He measured up. Yeah, yeah. he felt the same way. I think yeah. Well, he, yeah. He went through a time of of figuring out his own faith, and and I think going through a period of struggles and, and rebellion, and then has come to the place of investing in the church and ministry in his faith. And he feels, he feels the same way that, that pastors families uh, probably shouldn't do family devotions because, because it makes, it, it, it makes the word less desirable. It Mm -hmm. makes it cumbersome and burdensome. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not a thing that breathes life. The flip side of that is that I'm not a pastor now, which means that I do try to intentionally, um, spend time in the word with my girls yeah. because they're pub they're in public school and we, we go to church, we're part of a church, but there's not this constant exposure to it. And, and they seem to be responding eagerly to it. They love the Bible stories. They have great questions. They're still curious. Think, they're still curious. You haven't killed the curiosity. It's like, it's not like shoving I'm, their I'm face. And I try to do it as part of life. So like they have to sit down and eat breakfast every day anyway. Mm-hmm. So as long as they're sitting at a table, you know, eating cereal, I may as well take that 10, 15 minutes and, and build a conversation around a Bible story. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that it, it doesn't become something where I'm, interrupting their life to say, all right, I know you're really, you know, you're in the middle of this movie that you love, but let's hit pause mm. and, and interrupt it with scripture. And that mm, means, that's, so that's, you know what, that's a really valid point in itself. Like just how we approach these spiritual things in our, from our kids perspective, like yeah. they're, they're saying, these are the enjoyable things. You're stopping what's fun for me to do something that's you're making not enjoyable with how you're bringing it up and how, what it means for a family. Like we've talked here about if everyone has to sit still and no one can talk and there's like this anger that comes out because you're interrupting or whatever it is, that doesn't paint a positive picture around God's word. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, if, uh, and, and yeah, so if even sitting at the breakfast table, if, if one of them finishes their cereal and wants to get up and clear their dishes while I'm, you know, reading the creation story or whatever, there's part of me that wants to go, no, you need to sit still and listen. Mm. But part of me also realizes like, I, I don't want, I don't want them to associate this with something that's ruining their morning or bringing about anger, like scripture and anger just don't seem like they should go together. And so as parents, it's very hard to be reading and see a kid like jumping on the couch, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that ought to be handled in a way that's, that's not anger. And I, this is this is me talking to myself, not giving anybody else instructions because I haven't figured out. Um, because I because I I remember some of those associations where it was sort of a sit still, be quiet, pay attention, and it and it became um, 
it just, it took away some of the life from it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't want it. I don't want my kids to associate it that way. I think that's really wise. And going back to the Tim Keller thing, is there like a secret society of pastors, kids? Y'all just hang out and talk and, and commiserate or. No, I actually found, I, I've never met the guy I was okay. talking about. I, okay. He's a, he's a friend of a friend. Okay. And All so right. that was, that was shared with me. Uh, not something, okay. but there's not like a secret Facebook group right. that y'all, y'all hang out together. And no, there's yeah, no, no <laughs> such thing. If, uh, and if there was one, I think it might be the most sort of like miserable <laughs> navel gazing self, <laughs> self, like beating ourselves yeah, up and not and a good thing. I don't know that. I mean, it could be a really positive thing, but it, it, it would run the risk of being really dysfunctional really fast. <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. Now, uh, in talking about being a pastor's kid and being held to a standard and everyone's watching, um, you've gone through some recent hard things in your life. And uh, you and I sat next to each other the first night. And uh, I had heard, you know, through a good friend of mine who's gone through similar things about your story. And Mm -hmm. so um, everyone knew my loss that first night because I couldn't stop crying. (laughs) I was like shaking with hold it back, Heather, stop, don't, don't let anyone see. Uh, but I was grieving publicly and, uh, and I knew that from, you know, what you had shared online that you were grieving. And so, um, having, being held to the standard of a pastor's kid and you're not allowed to make mistakes or have hard things happen and also grieving like legitimately the loss of, um, the end of a marriage. Talk to us about that for, um, those listening that what did you learn about all of that together having to grieve publicly having to grieve you know even calling the end of a marriage grief is sometimes revolutionary for people so yeah i think um so for for listeners who who wouldn't wouldn't know um uh i i got divorced uh last year and uh it as these things are, it's a long and complicated and multi-layered story. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a, a blog post, an article called when a marriage dies that just some reflections on it and about that process and the pain and the grieving and the loss of it. Um, the very, very short version is that it wasn't what I wanted and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a thing that I was, I was, uh, just fine with it. It was very difficult. And, and so that's, that has been the process that, that I, you know, that I've been in for several months now. Um, and so that, yeah, that first night when the, the, the team that was going to Israel <laughs> I, or the group, a bunch I, of strangers I, in a room, yeah, yeah, a bunch of strangers in a room. Um, most of us maybe knew something of associate by association of a few others, but really total strangers. Um, I had a, there was a sense of jealousy, that you were f- a free enough person to grieve the way you did. That's not mm-hmm. who I am mm-hmm. and it's not how I process things, but you, you create, you helped create a context of, of people who felt compassion for each other, who were open to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and helped me see that it is, uh, an okay thing to take the risk of being open about hard things. Hmm. So I had written about my, my divorce and that grief online, but that's still not a thing that I just am comfortable just talking about. Yeah. Um, and, or, 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 uh, sharing publicly about, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One is I want to respect, uh, the privacy of my ex-wife and respect her story. It's not just mine. Uh, it's not my business to, to tell people everything that happened and, and drag her into the spotlight. Uh, but the spotlight is another aspect that makes it hard because so I'm a pastor's kid. I'm John Piper's son. And now I'm somebody who, who is a writer and podcasts myself. And so I've kind of put myself in front of people. You've, and so stayed, to, in, you've stayed in the spotlight. It was like right. you were there by birth, but then you've kind of stayed there. Yeah. 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 And I have, you know, my older brothers have kind of eschewed the spotlight and, and are doing great things very much on their own out of this arena altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have found this arena to be a place that God's put me and I, you know, trying to use my gifts here. Um, but what that does is it, it does create this, this 
challenging tension of how, how, how do I be honest? How do I be vulnerable in the right ways? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I, but then how do I maintain privacy? And so like, so honesty and openness, but and privacy are a difficult thing to balance. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because privacy and secrecy are really similar too. And one of those is good and one of those is bad. Hmm. Um, and so it, it just, it's a, it's kind of a sticky mess. Um, hmm. and so when I saw the way that you were able to get up and say, this is where I'm coming from. My heart is in just this very sort of raw, hurt, exhausted place inside. I was thinking me too. And outside I probably had my arms crossed and a pretty blank look on my face. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're stoic. Stoic. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. that works for me and against me. It's a very mm-hmm. self-protective thing. And mm-hmm. it's also a, uh, it's also a thing that when people found out that my marriage was over, the majority of them were like, I had no idea, mm-hmm. which was both very frustrating and very much on purpose. And that's, that's the tension of somebody who's in, I don't want to say in the public eye, but maybe in a ministry leadership position because, because uh, too much openness causes problems and not enough causes problems. And I don't know that there's a sweet spot in the middle. I think you just spend time falling off of one side of that fence or the other. And there's a little bit of, as long as you're honest with a group of people, like maybe not like everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've got your core people that know your heart on a moment to moment basis and you can go to when it's a rougher day or, um, you need to just fall apart with a group of people. I think, I think that is a helpful thing when you have such a public, um, exposure in general, you know? Yeah. And, th- and those, those people are the, uh, the anchor that keeps you from floating away. Yeah. Uh, because the public ultimately doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, what matters is is character and godliness and honesty, and that especially in the more painful the circumstance, I think the more private that is. But but that does require a group of people, and I'm really thankful for the people I had and have in my life who are people I can just unpack all of this to and just unload at if if it's one of those days or one of those weeks or there are you know because. Because it ebbs and flows, pain ebbs and flows, anger ebbs and flows, just exhaustion ebbs and flows, and so people I can lean on for help, and but but that's a small number of people. That's not a thing. I don't owe that to anybody else, right? Um, and I think that's one of the challenges of being. I mean, start it with a pastor's kid. Also true for people in ministry and anybody who is in the public eye, is that people who know of you think you owe them something. Mm. Hmm. Um, they know more now, of you than you know of them. That's the tricky part. Too. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and so and so when they find out that you've been holding something back, even if it's for a very reason, they feel they they were owed an explanation or owed something. And that's not that's not true across the board. But it is it is something that I have encountered, and uh, and something that anybody in ministry will encounter. And I think that the flip side of that is that for listeners who are not in ministry, not in leadership. Be really conscientious of what you think someone owes you. Like what um, your pastor owes you, what your yeah pastor, your pastor's yeah. wife, yeah. your pastor's kids, yeah, your favorite podcast host, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, preach, they, yeah. They don't owe you anything. Um, they th- that relationship is not built on mutual trust because mm. uh, unless it's a, unless it's a genuine friendship. And so I don't, I don't say that to chastise, but just to say it's, it's a natural response that we have. I feel the same way. There's a reason we read tabloids. There's a reason we, we judge celebrities because that's our natural reaction. And I'm simply saying, you don't have the whole story. There's probably a better response and a more gracious and open-handed one. And I will say I have been blown away by the support and encouragement and grace that people have shown me, um, which speaks volumes to the work that Christ has done across his church. So Facebook messages and Twitter messages and text messages and emails, some from people I know very well, some from people I I don't know at all, Mm -hmm. all just, some of them as simple as I'm praying for you. I'm sorry you're going through this hard thing. Some opening up about their own hard experiences. Um, 
So this is not to say my experience has been solely negative. It's been so encouraging in that way. But there is there is sort of an ugly underbelly to it. And I think it's so important as a church that we there's there's a few hot topics like the scarlet letters that we don't talk about. But yeah. it's really clear that <laughs> the numbers don't lie. I just my last episode that went live was on pornography. If 60 percent of men are struggling and 30 percent of women in the church and we're not talking about it. Um, or providing resources or help publicly, um, or it's a taboo to mention that was a struggle, uh, then we're, we're stuck. We're only going to get, it's only going to add more shame. Like you said, secrecy is not the good thing. Honesty is, even if it's in our little circles, um, so more ministries to those who are healing from divorce. I mean, it's a part of my some of my siblings' story, and, and they're in the church. And if we, if we don't, if, if, if leaders who have gone through a divorce, um, don't feel the freedom to share like you did just to say, this is the grief. This is the sad, this is the loss that I feel. Um, then, then it's not going to encourage others to do the same in their little circles of, you know, this is really like a ripping apart. This was, this was like a one flesh totally ripped apart and I am bleeding, but no one can see. I, you know, I had a friend, uh, her parents got divorced and, you know, there's real loss there and no one's bringing her meals. Like you do when, like when my dad died, people were, you know, bringing me meals. It's like this acceptable form of communal grieving, and uh, and no one did that for her, and she was she was still like recovering from the loss of what was. And mm-hmm. anyway, I think I think it's really powerful that you came out to share that. Um, I'm praying for you as you continue through this process because I think you know as you have this platform and you're really good at writing, you know, I'm confident God will use that and won't waste that pain. Um, what's the hardest thing as a single dad? What's your, (laughs) cause there's a single Uh, moms listening. I know they're, they're listening. My daughters, their mom is still very much in their lives. This is, you know, this is not a, you know, this was not an abandonment situation. Right. Your shared custody, shared custody. And she is fully invested as their mother. Um, And so, so I don't bear the burden of being both parents. I bear Mm -hmm. that burden part of the time, but there's also still a, they have a mother who is, who is deeply invested in their lives. And so, um, so that, that helps. Uh, I think, I think a lot of single moms don't have that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's, there's more of a trying to be both parents. And so that's a situation that I'm, I'm thankful that, that, you know, there's a lot of burdens, but that's not one I feel like I have to bear as much. I think the hardest thing is just, um, is the lack of margin. Um, Mm. you know, I don't, I I haven't written anything of substance for, for a few months now. Um, because, because writing was always something I could do in the margins of my life. But now, uh, on, in the times that I have my daughters with me, it is a hundred percent on all the time. And so, um, fully invested in them full, you know, so everything as simple as homework and soccer practice and things like that to just trying to be, have a relationship with them and conversations and Mm -hmm. sitting there and watching movies with them. And, um, and then in the times they're not with me is that's when the rest of life has to happen. So if Mm -hmm. I want to maintain any friendships or, you know, keep my fridge full or pay bills or the, you know, just those parts of life. And so there's just, I think it's a season of life where there's just things that have to be set aside. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, and that's hard because it also just, it's just tiring. Uh, and, and I, that sounds really trite because everybody's tired all the time. That's, you know, that is our favorite response when somebody says, How's it going? You go, I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm tired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Busy. I'm tired. Um, I have discovered a level of tired and busy that, uh, I didn't know existed. And I think any single parent is probably nodding their heads and and just saying, yes, that is a, as a very real thing. I think the other thing is, um, caring for the emotional and spiritual well-being of, of my daughters because, um, because it's not a shared responsibility anymore. Mm. Um, I, that's not a thing that I can work out with their mother to figure out how are we working together on this? Mm-hmm. We can work out schedules. We can work out finances. It's my job 
to be 100% invested in their souls and in their happiness and in their well-being and in their decision-making and um, investing in that. And that's uh, – it's a it's an amazing thing and kind of a terrifying thing too. Um, so that – I think that's the other aspect of it. Just – Maybe it's maybe it's unique to being a dad, but it's easy to kind of tap out on those things. Um, when there's yeah yeah when there's when when there's a marriage partnership and because because I think a lot of moms are just more intuitively good at that mm. um, and clued into those things and that's not an excuse for dads. It's a it's just a reality that kind of is. If there's no space for like if the mom's just filling that role, then right. it's filled. Yeah yeah and and dads could still invest more in that and should. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I wasn't I wasn't a I wasn't a clueless dad before, but now there's just a a level of awareness that when my daughters get off the school bus and they have that look on their face that today was a just a terrible day, um, that doesn't get funneled to mom because they're with me. So that that becomes my it is my role as a parent to encourage love, ask questions, just listen, give space, you know, f- figure out, is it, is it space or is it conversation? <laughs> and then you're is a guy it, too. Right. So you're trying to sort out, yeah, how do I handle these female yeah, and, emotions? And, and, yeah, and, and I'm a dad raising daughters, which means that yeah. my, my intuitive way of resolving an issue is not necessarily the one they're looking for all the right. time. Right. Uh, so uh, that, that aspect of things is, I think I have a better relationship with my daughters now than I did hmm. a year ago really uh, in a lot of ways because of this level of investment. But I've also discovered a whole lot of things that I'm not very good at and that I need to keep growing in. And thankfully, kids are very loving and gracious, especially if you're willing to say you're sorry. Um, and so – but that's been that's been a challenge because I just – I feel that responsibility to them uh, as – the person who's pouring into their souls during at least half of their life. The other mm-hmm. half, they're with their mom. And I hope and I pray that I know she's invested in them relationally. And, uh, but, but that's not my responsibility and it's not under my, it's not under my watchful eye in any way, shape or form. Wow. Yeah. The, it just, the whole dynamic shifted for you. And I love that you're saying you have a better relationship with your daughters now and that it is even called up <laughs> to do things and to grow and to lean on Jesus a little bit more for uh, wisdom to know how to counsel them. And, uh, yeah, I- I'm thankful that you're out there, um, being honest and <laughs> sharing. And, uh, I know that's been helpful for the gal listening today to just have that perspective. And it encourages the mom listening, you know, to hear that, that you're acknowledging the role that moms play in a home and uh, that it's, it's a new level of tired. (laughs) You know, don't they say like it's when they're little, it's physical and when they grow, it's emotional. And you're in that, I think it's emotionally exhausting and you're still in the, in the grief. I feel like when I'm grieving, I'm emotionally spent and I'm throwing on top of that dealing with the emotions of my kids. And yeah. Yeah. You're, you're carrying, you're carrying their burden as well because kids, kids don't always have the capacity to, to process and, and carry their own grief or even to put a finger on what it is. You yeah. know, there's not a level of self-awareness and, yeah. and just maturity to recognize that this is grief, this is anger. So sometimes, sometimes that bad day has nothing to do with the day itself and everything to do with this other stuff they're carrying. And it's finally surfacing. You know, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, this is, this is a bit, a bit off subject, but it's, um, it's something that I have become more and more aware of. I see a tendency in the church where um, where dads um, are congratulated for doing things that dads just ought to do. Hmm, yeah. Uh, and as a single dad, I don't have a ton of patience for that. I didn't have a ton before, but I really don't now. <laughs> you know, so you see, so you see, like a Facebook post where mom goes away to a women's retreat for forty eight hours, right? And and dad's like, I survived. I even put the dishes in the dishwasher. Uh, and then mom comes home and sort of gives him a high five because he did it. And I just want to go, that's just called being a dad. Like right. You should be able to keep, keep it, a ha- you know, keep a good house and invest in your kids and have a good time. And I, and I say that because I think, I think we probably need to reset 
the expectations on what it is, what, what parents ought to do. And dads don't deserve congratulations for doing dad things. Hmm. And so moms need to stop congratulating them. Please, moms, don't give don't give men high fives for doing basic dad things. Or well, and basic it's just that it's the culture in general. I, I saw a post once that said, you know, when my husband's out with my four kids, people are like, oh, what a good dad. When I'm out with my four kids, they say, wow, you have your hands full. <laughs> they right. never say, wow, what a yeah, good mom. She has her four kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it, it bothers me when I get told that I'm, you know, oh, you're so cute when I take my daughters to Panera for lunch. And <laughs> and moms, that's just like that's what you do between, you know, Target and you know, the grocery store. Yeah, you know, well, you and they get the eye rolls the when the kids do anything when they're with the mom, right. but like the dad's oh, poor dad, he's got to handle right. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that we could we could run we could chase this rabbit a long way. I just I, yeah. this is one of those things that as a single dad I feel I feel a great res, a great sense of responsibility to my children to to give them <laughs> everything from something as simple as a neat and orderly home where hmm. they where where there's you know there's it's comfortable and there's food in the fridge and it's not just like oh we do takeout every night because dad can't cook like that's that's hmm. BS. Mm, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so if I, I don't know, I just look at that and I, it, it, it seems to me something that as part of this whole conversation about divorce and single parents and mixed, you know, mixed families and blended families and, and all of this, that there's just, I think the expectations need to change specifically for men. I don't know if it's church specific. That's where I see it most. Cause that's my world. Mm-hmm. Um, to just say, just do your job. It's yeah. your job to, yeah. to be a present father who can manage a home. You were 50, 50 involved in the making of the child. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, no, not I, in the, not in the, the carrying and no, giving birth of the child. No, got off, you, we got been, off easy with that part. You got off easy. No. And I already yeah. feel like men do. I already say this a lot that men do a lot more than our dads or grandpas even began to do in the home. And so I already give, when I see like a dad at the grocery store with his kids and I, I mean, I'm already like, that's great. I'm thinking that's great. He is a part of the family and he is fulfilling, you know, more than, more than what, what the generations before us did. But I think that what you have to say is, is really powerful. I think, you know, I'm not letting it be this assumed, well, dad's less than in these areas, um, is really good. So Barnabas sticking around, we're going to talk about Israel. Our trip, y'all heard me say this. It wasn't just, let's go see where Jesus was. It was very modern. Let's go Mm -hmm. see what's going on and get a little behind the scenes, truth serum that you can't see on the news or it's always twisted the way that it gets reported over here. Um, So we were meeting with like on the ground, real deal people. Uh, It's hard to communicate when I came back and told friends, I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like this guy wrote the tactical manual for the Israeli army, the IDF, like Mm -hmm. in the nineties, this guy, (laughs) he is legit. His name was Elliot Shodoff. Yes. Um, what was your, I mean, that his, his talk was chalked full. He took us to yeah. Golan Heights, which is the very North part of Israel. We could see Lebanon. We could see Syria. We could hear bombs. <laughs> what did you take yeah. away from our time with him? Cause there was so much. He blended together, uh, just these sort of words of wisdom on, on how the world works. Yeah. Yeah. Big picture um, things. And how politics works. And along with really area specific, you know, what is the nature of the conflict between Israel and its and its surrounding neighbors? Um and both of them were were super fascinating. There's there's a couple of things that he said that have just stuck with me in terms of understanding politics, really. Yeah. And 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 one of you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the phrase wrong. You could probably correct me if you remember, but <laughs> okay. he basically said none none of us make good decisions Mm. because the good, the good decisions are obvious. It's not really a decision. Mm -hmm. There's an answer. He said, so we, the only decisions we make are bad decisions so that the, we, our goal is to make the least bad decision. Mm -hmm. So, and especially in terms of conflict and war and going to war and, uh, and it, it changes and then, and then he expanded on that to think about, you know, how the media, covers the decisions that are made. So 
our current president, past presidents make a decision to go to war, not go to war, blow something up, not blow something up. Um, and the media immediately says, terrible decision, terrible mm-hmm. decision. Mm-hmm. And his point was, yeah, it was a terrible decision, but you don't know which decisions they didn't make right. and all the factors in that, because maybe, maybe this was the least terrible of the terrible decisions. Um, and that, that reframed for me two things. One is how to listen to the media, uh, which is with a very discerning and somewhat skeptical ear. And the other was just a level of uh, empathy might be too strong. Just a sense of the, the complexity and difficulty of being a decision maker at the highest levels. And I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's true. And it's true at a family level too. You just, you can shrink it down. Um, but that, that stuck with me because it, it just reshaped how I perceived conflict and how I perceived the reporting of conflicts around the world. Um, yeah, it was almost like the more you know, the less you know. It's not one of the yeah. one of the quotes. It was kind of like the more we dig into this, and the more he spoke, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so much more complex than as an American we like to boil it down and put it into boxes. Um, just the fact that we as Americans don't grasp that people are just born into a group into your ethnic group and you can't switch sides. So there's that aspect of war that's happening there. And then there's the religious side. And he made a really good point, which just for y'all, if you don't know, there's a difference between an Arab and a Muslim. Like that's where he started. He's like, they're not the same thing. A Muslim is a religion and Arab is a native speaker of Arabic. Um, There's cultural, there's ethnic, there's religious. And it's all that comes into play. And then you've got these actual land battles, which... You know, I didn't even know the background on that. And just, it was, you know, there's the Turks and then Britain and France and dividing up all the countries. And he said it was like they just stood over a map with rulers and drew these straight lines. Yeah, he said any anytime you see a straight line on a map, you know what happened. And it was uh, somebody far, far away with a ruler and a map deciding where that border should be. And yeah. it doesn't have any bearing on the the reality of the... The people on the, the ground. Area. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the people on the ground. So you're in a village and they could draw a line right through your village. Uh, I, I just thought that was really interesting. And if for you listening, mom, if you're not driving and listening, pull up maps on your phone right now. Type in Israel and I want you to see it and look for the straight lines. I also want you to see what countries are around Israel. You'll see Egypt down there, which is a superpower kind of in that area, uh, mm-hmm. but not as much in chaos, even though they had the bombings after we left Israel um, of the Coptic communities, the Christian communities. Then there's um, Syria and Iraq, and there's on the other side. And then at the top of Israel is Lebanon and Jordan, and they're all surrounding. And each of those countries you've probably seen in the news with some sort of terrorist group uh, or governmental issues. And I love that he said, these aren't borders. We don't have borders with Syria Mm -hmm. because you can only have borders with a country that you can negotiate with. Is that what he said? Yeah. And and then he, and then he wanted to define what a country is. And he said it, a country is a place. Well, I don't remember exactly. I said a country is a a political entity that has a monopoly, controls the violence more or less. Yeah. That uses the military to protect its borders. So if you have a political entity that control, can control the military, then you can talk to that country about borders. But otherwise, yeah. you just and so have in that area. He pointed at a, you know Syria, uh, and he's like, "That's not a country right now because mm-hmm. the government is not in control. They don't they don't defend their borders, and they're not controlling the violence in their nation. They're not using the military or using violence to suppress violence." Um, he said, "Israel, you know, politically, Israel is Palestine is not by that definition." Yeah. So when um, we left, <laughs> like Egypt gets bombed, and then. Uh, we had the chemical attack, and that was the government that did the chemical attack, right? Mm-hmm. It was not ISIS, because at first when I saw the news, I th- assumed it was ISIS. Yeah, they, uh, they, they, Assad was blamed for the for the chemical attack, and he's the you know he's the the ruling the ruling figure, and yeah, it's uh, so, so. Then when you hear that Trump sends in bombs the air. Uh, yeah, an airfield. Airfield in Syria. Yeah. He was bombing the government, which you're like, well, that doesn't make sense, right? Aren't we against the terrorist group? And that's where we as Americans get so confused and don't recognize 
these governments aren't like our governments. They're not for the people. I loved how he said, even these terrorist groups, how he differentiated them from the Israeli army. My most favorite thing was how he said in the Israeli army, first of all, isn't it everyone has to go through it? Yeah, every every Israeli citizen uh, at age 18, so basically graduation from high school, every male has to spend three years in military service and every female has to spend two. And so the only command they can give as a, as a leader in the army is follow me. And these aren't Christians, people that are getting that from Jesus. Like, this right. is like yeah. the Israeli army is follow me. So what that says is I'm only going to lead you where I'm willing to go. Then you have these terrorist groups. He said, you don't raise through the ranks with suicide attacks, suicide bombings. <laughs> like, yeah. You're not getting to the position of power because you have done so many successful suicide bombings. What it is, is the terrorist groups are led by people that are sitting off in palaces or wherever telling others what to do. And just that differentiation of how even those organizations are led was interesting to me. I don't know. I'm totally yeah, going on track, and, but it just made me. No, no, it's like, it, but, but, but that's like what listeners are getting is sort of the nature of this, um, the nature of this two hour time we had with, with Elliot, where it was all over the place. Yeah, it was all and over it the all place. Wove to, it all sort of wove together into this tapestry of, wow, this is an, just a, an incredibly complex, complicated reality, but also a much clearer picture than any of us had because, we Westerners thrive on drawing neat lines like those straight lines between countries, yeah. um, but also in just trying to define a conflict one way. Oh, it's Sunnis versus Shiites, you know, so two different – the two different primary sects of Islam, and he debunked that mm-hmm. and said – he said, no, you have, you have Sunnis and Shiites fighting on the same side against – another power just across the Middle East. Right. Uh, in some cases, they're against one another. Um, and then he, he even got psychological at a couple different points. And my, one, one of my other favorite parts was that he talked about, you know, uh, is peace the greatest value of society? Right. We might say you it know? is. We might say Yeah, it and everybody is. says yeah. yes. And he's like, yeah, that sounds like the right answer. And then he went on to sort of just debunk that over and over again. He said, ultimately, what people go to war for is personal interest. Mm-hmm. Defending their personal comforts, mm-hmm. um, because it's not until those are threatened that we go to war. Um, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not this concept of peace. It's not justice. Now those they play a role in there, and that's that's going to raise some hackles on people, I think, because we want we want to be idealistic um, and believe that peace is possible. Right, but but ultimately, it's my peace. It's my home. It's my safety. It's my you know, the encroaching on my personal comfort. They're fighting and against he, that radical Islam. They don't, what did he say? He, they don't want their ladies to have to be covered, <laughs> covered up. They don't want right. them to instill their beliefs on their women. So they'll go to yeah, war so over that. Yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 the Syrian government is fighting against Muslim extremists so that the president's wife can be glamorous was sort of the, was sort of the, yeah. uh, like what in like, like a Hollywood starlet level glamorous. Yeah. And, uh, and that was, that was sort of, and, and obviously he was boiling things down to, to a level that's probably maybe, maybe too simplistic, but he did it so many different times that you begin to just see there are a million ingredients in a conflict like this. It's not one thing. It's not, Oh, it's just, ethnic or it's just religious or it's just this it's all of those things all blended together and even, yeah yeah and, and even ethnic conflict is more complex than we give it uh mm-hmm. we give it credit for because you know he he talked about how um he said it's he said it's one thing to sort of dehumanize someone else where you say um you know you're a dog they're a dog yeah yeah and then he said it's another thing when you go to the level of not they're a dog but they are cancer so instead of just dehumanizing, you've now made them the threat. So because a lot of people don't want to shoot dogs, we just, yeah, just want to differentiate ourselves. From yeah, dogs. yeah, yeah. But we all want to eliminate cancer. Mm-hmm. So when you when you paint an entire ethnic group or an entire religious group as a cancer, as a poison, now we rise up together to eliminate. He said when you 
you draw that along ethnic lines, that's where ethnic genocide and these hundreds and thousands of years of conflict come from because one group is raised to view the other as the poison of the world. And that's how the West is viewed by certain Muslim extremists. Didn't he say they have a death to America day? Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, he, he, and he said, he, you know, he was very, he was very sarcastic and flippant, which I loved. Um, (laughs) But he said, he said, I love these guys. You never know. You you never have to guess where they stand. It's death to America day. All right. I know exactly what they're about. (laughs) I will respond to that. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's nothing subversive about it. It's just, okay, here you come with your guns and your bombs and it makes it simpler. And of course he's, he has that military sort of pragmatic brusqueness about him, but and and I think he was also softening it for uh, a bunch of Americans who aren't used to that that level of life and death reality. Yeah, and you know, he he talked about st- uh, strategic versus tactic. Mm-hmm. That was helpful for me, and even talking about our being a mom. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. like, what's my strategy? Okay, my strategy is why? Why am I doing this? Why am I? feeding and pouring into these boys. Well, I want them to be men who honor God and who function well in society. Okay. But my tactic is my choices I make every day to reach that goal. And he said, terrorism is a terrible tactic. It's not, it's not a a strategy. It's not a good strategy. Yeah. He said, it's not a strategy. It's a a terrible strategy. It is a, it's a series of tactical decisions with no strategy behind them. Yes. Yes. Because when you have terrorism, you only increase your uh, defense against terrorism. It only makes people rise up more to fight you when you use terrorism. Yeah. He said terrorism has never won. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's wreaked, it's wreaked a lot of havoc, but no society has ever just given in to terrorists because of, because the, the theory behind it is if we create fear in, in the common people, they will pressure their government to give in to us. Mm. And in reality, the exact opposite happens. Yeah. Fear is created and the government is pressured to squash whoever is making the fear. And drop some bombs on them. That's what yeah. happens. Well, uh, okay, so we met with that guy in, like, again, like you said, two hours. We're just getting a little snippet <laughs> of this. And then we met with uh, an Arab Muslim Israeli journalist who we cannot share his name. Um, and that whole conversation, one of our tra- co-travelers, what do we call him? Kai. The guy that uh, co-travelers. What, was, yeah, what of, am I saying? One of the part of our group. One of the guys on the trip is a Reno journalist, and I'm going to put links to a lot of the stuff he wrote because he even has clips of Elliot Chodoff. Um, but he even summarizes our time with the journalist really well. Um, he was talking about the Palestinian conflict, um, why this journalist loves being in Israel and is thankful to be a journalist there and have freedom to right to speak whereas in if he was in palestine he would be killed for the things that he says uh i thought that was really interesting because i got did you get asked when you got back how safe did you feel um not a ton um i think safety (laughs) safety is is a is a primary concern for a lot of people i mostly just got asked general questions like how was it Mm -hmm. um but i it is it is a it's just sort of a hovering question because there's so much in the news about violence and conflict and terrorism. Um, I think, I think that, yeah, the time with that, with that journalist was, was profound to me because he now granted he's, he's Muslim, but he's not, um, he said he would be called a bad Muslim by, by <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not a devout sort of, yes, a bit, yeah. a bit nominal. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that, that obviously plays a role in how he views things, but he basically said, uh, from his view, uh, that that region would be better served to be governed by Israel because Israel protects the rights of all its citizens, Jewish and Muslim and Christian alike. So the rights, the, the just the rights of daily freedoms and protections and to vote and basic democratic rights, human rights. Uh, whereas um, he said he said the alternative uh on the, on the Palestinian side and, and some of these Muslim governments is there is no compromise. It is 100% capitulation to what they want. And which means that huge portions of the population would lose their rights and, and probably lose their lives in the end. And so a Muslim person is saying that it would be better for Israel to govern. 
And we heard the same thing from a couple of Palestinians as well. Uh, yeah. Not not journalists, but just people who live in Palestine and are under Muslim governance. One one is a Muslim, one is a Christian, and they both said something similar. Yeah. And, and for the mom and, listening, she may not know with Palestine. You've heard the phrase Palestine. You might even heard negative news about Israel. They're taking land away from Palestine. Again, look at that map. You might see a little area laid out, marked out, Gaza. The Gaza Strip you've heard talked about. It's going to be um, upper left corner of your map. And then there's going to be West Bank you've heard mentioned. And there's going to be the dotted line drawn around that. Those That's Palestine. And the dotted line are lines that have been drawn and, and a wall that's actually been built to separate it, uh, Israel yeah. from this area. And then... The Palestinian government. Um, that's a whole complexity. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think I think one. I, I know I know our time is short. But yeah. One one last thing that stood yeah. out to me about all of that was, I went in and I had sort of the seed of an impression in my mind that Israel had walled in Palestine. Yeah, yeah. and sort of sort of like an internment camp was sort right. of what I had in mind, and. And the way that we saw it and the way that it was presented to us, both by Palestinians and by Israeli military, who are obviously – they're going to be a little bit biased, a lot of bit biased, was that they didn't want the wall. But the wall had to go up because of the the terrorist attacks that were coming from the Palestinian side into Israel and killing – I mean buses full of children in one case and – Dozens and dozens of attacks weekly for a few years stretch in the early 2000s, and so the wall the wall went up. But it and but the guy who the guy who was responsible for building the wall basically said, "I would be the first one to take a sledgehammer to it mm-hmm. if circumstances allowed." Um, yeah. And that and, not, and the walls pretty much stopped the. Ter- I mean, that's why I'm saying right. safety wise. Like, I did yeah. not feel unsafe in Israel. Little children were walking the streets in Jerusalem. Uh, there was art. There was life. There yeah, was joy. I, I, there, singing, I did not singing, feel unsafe. Singing, dancing, eating until all hours of the yeah. morning on the weekends. I mean, it just it's a it's a thriving metropolis. And so way. the wall is working. It is kept out. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me. How many uh, hundreds, thousands of attacks have been you said tried? There was, it, it was there was yeah. I mean. Yeah, it was it was in the hundreds, maybe four, and it, a declining number, but in the hundreds weekly. Okay, at one stretch after they went up, and then it has it has slowed. But yeah, just uh, the number of potential terrorists with firearms and explosives and knives who have been stopped is is astounding. And but everybody also acknowledges that the system sucks. Like yeah. it's terrible to have a wall and sort of this vetting system, and because it does it does effectively imprison uh good citizens as well in some ways mm-hmm. they don't have the same freedoms to come and go into Jerusalem and other parts of Israel um so the checkpoint so people know they do allow Palestinians to yeah. come in you have to get a special card and there's a specific place and you have to walk through you can't bring a car through um and then there's bad news out there we just saw a friend from our trip post that it said no tourists allowed in Bethlehem anymore. And then our leader was like, uh, that's not true. I'm going to be there in 12 days. Like it's not all everything you read. If you get one message, don't trust every single thing you read about this situation in Israel and believe that that wall is not imposed upon Palestine. And like they're controlling them like a camp, like you said, but it's protecting it's the best option. A two state option. Our, the journalist told us was the best option no, he at said, this point. He said it was he said a one state option. A one is, state option. Is, is he said oh. he said that the two state option would only work if if a compromise could be reached, but Palestine It's never going to happen. Yeah. Palestine the Palestinian government hasn't budged. He said it's the one state option where Israel is the governing state. He said that's also never going to happen. But um Interesting. Well. So yeah, it's but but again, the, the whole thing is this example of there aren't it's it's a whole series of bad de- it's a whole series of bad decisions better bad decisions which, which one yeah. which one is the least bad or the, the better least bad, bad. Yeah. yeah the better bad oh i know you got to go i we could talk for days and i oh, hope this just got the listeners started but thank you barnabas for sharing your heart and your head with us uh today and uh where do they find you online if they want to keep following you uh Twitter is at Barnabas Piper. You can find me on Facebook, uh, Facebook page. Um, and then if you go to BarnabasPiper.com, there's blog archives and uh, 
I update the podcast that I host there. So those are probably the three. What's best the name places. of your podcast? Say, give a shout out. The Happy Rant, where mm-hmm. uh, myself and two co-hosts essentially poke fun at all of the quirky things we find in the world and the church. <laughs> Happy Rant. All right. Thanks, Barnabas. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. All right. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the God-Centered Mom podcast. If you're looking for more resources on how to replace me with he, go to GodCenteredMom.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guest. I want you to really understand and know that God is just as present while you are washing dishes at your kitchen sink as while you are worshiping him in a church pew. He sees your service to your family and he is pleased. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Have a great day.